Avalanche Education presents a strategy, but our culture does not yet connect to that strategy enough. We took our like careful plan, took that piece of paper, rolled it into a tiny ball and like chucked it over our shoulders and dropped in. This is Margaret Wheeler and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, happy December, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well and getting to know your snowpack wherever you are. And I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's episode um, where Wes Gregg interviewed Kyle Lamott. I'd just like to reach out again and say welcome to the team, Wes. Um, You'll be hearing some more interviews from Wes throughout the podcast season on the third Thursday of every month. And he'll also be, be doing some uh, producing work for other guest interviewees that we have on the show. So um, I'm really excited about teaming up with Wes, and I think he's going to bring a ton to the table. He's already taught me a whole lot uh, just in the, the last couple months that we've been working together. So thanks again, Wes, and big welcome to you. Um, last week he talked a bit about the... Uh, snow saw giveaway that we have going on so we've again teamed up with primo snow and avalanche to give away four snow saws throughout the season this year for the first snow saw giveaway all you got to do is subscribe or follow us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on and then just snap a screenshot on your phone or your computer and send us that screenshot showing that you're subscribed You can send that to the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com and you'll be entered to win the snow saw, uh, the El Profesional snow saw. It's lightweight and cuts straight. And if you can't wait for the drawing on January 5th, uh, you can go to primosnowavalanche.com and enter TAH10 for 10% off your new snow saw. So we'll be pulling that drawing uh, on January 5th during the interview with Matt Promomo, maker of the El Profesional Snowsaw. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. The zone of proximal development. What? We sit down and, and take a pretty deep dive in this conversation with Margaret Wheeler. I met Margaret when she taught my level three a number of years ago, and then I've also had the good fortune of taking a ski guide course from her through the AMGA. And I can honestly say she's one of the best instructors that I've ever learned from. Um, and I know if, if you've taken a program where Margaret was instructing, I'm sure you felt that too. 
Um, this is a great conversation and we cover a whole lot in this one. We talk about avalanche education, awareness of, our, of what our dominant culture is, issues of inequality, and some thoughts on balance in life. And we round out the conversation with some reflection on, on uh, some formative experiences in Margaret's career. Let's just dive right in with a great conversation with Margaret Wheeler. Good morning, Margaret. Very good to see you this morning. You as well. Thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I was hoping you could talk to the listeners a bit about your background and the roadmap that brought you to where you are today. Um, sure thing. It is, it's a little bit of a twisty, turny road. I mean, I know that happens in life. Um, but I, uh, I have a background in studying history as well as engineering, uh, which may seem a little bit incongruent, but it has to do with sort of an analytic approach. Um, I think that's, that's what I took from that experience. Um, I also have a latent artistic streak, which shows itself in funny ways, um, but it does, I think, allow me to be open to um, some of the less analytic approaches. So specifically, um, I was exposed to the idea of being a mountain guide uh, when I was halfway through engineering school. Um, I had gone to engineering school ostensibly as grad school to uh, reprofessionalize myself after two years being a ski bum in Chamonix. And in those two years, the first one was like paradise every single day. It was uh, completely life-changing. And the second one was the year when um, 36 locals were killed by February. Um, it was 1998-99, which was when the tunnel that connects France to Italy caught fire and burned. Um, so it was, uh, I interpreted that as the universe telling me to go um, pick up my life that I had before, which was focused on figuring out um, a professional career. So by way of being a ski bum in engineering school, I ended up um, uh, meeting Martin Vulcan out there in Washington and Scott Shell, uh, And the two of them um, introduced me to the idea of being a mountain guide. Um, so that happened halfway through engineering school. <laughs> and I took uh, my first AMGA program, um, the February of my first year of grad school, and it was uh, like a giant clerthunk um, of something clicking into place. Um, and I say that like I had spent my life around folks who knew what they wanted to do with their lives prior to that, and I was baffled by that situation. <laughs> so that click into place uh, was pretty powerful for me. So the path from engineering into the mountains, back to engineering, again, uh, it kept weaving its way back and forth. So I worked as an engineer while I was going through my guides training program. I got to take credit for both sides. Folks in the guiding world sort of give street cred to engineering. Folks in the engineering get world, folks in the engineering world give street cred to guiding. Um, it allowed me to successfully do both, uh, which was enormously fortunate in hindsight. Um, and then my guiding certification, I completed that in 2006. So I finished my, um, I finished all of my AMGA training and certification programs uh, for IFMGA to get my license there. And after that, I kept working as an engineer and as a mountain guide. 
um, until I was laid off from my engineering job in 2009 after, you know, the, the sort of economic percolation down from 2008. And I was so busy guiding at that point uh, that it was a relief. I was too chicken to quit the engineering job and the universe took care of that for me. It's very helpful. What type of engineering work were you doing? I studied energy and fluids, uh, which when you translate that into application, I was really interested in fuel cells. Uh, I was really interested in how you can generate power without burning hydrocarbons. Um, And the other thing that happened there is there was a lot going on with that. And then the administration changed and uh, a lot of the funding for the fuel cell research was cut um, and went away. So I shifted gears and I was working in uh, energy efficiency in municipal water plants. So town water, they're really, they're built not to break. And when they do break, they're built with a backup and that wastes a lot of energy. So we basically would go and retrofit them to be more flexible and save a lot of energy. That's like translation from nerd big time. (laughs) So this is kind of in the 2006 to 2009 range. And I should add that that you were the second U.S. female to attain the full IFMGA certification, right? And so was, then, yeah. then you were living in Washington, working engineering and ski guiding and climbing guiding. Alpine. Yes, yeah. I was working for Martin Vulcan at Pro Guiding Service and um, uh, was working as an engineer at the same time. So it, I was allowed – the engineering job was – part-time and I was a field engineer. So I would go on site and I could mix it. I could be gone for a week or two from the engineering job. And I would just be in the field, get to the air quotes, um, when I was doing the guiding work. Um, and so it worked out, it worked out so well. Uh, the company I worked for was enormously flexible with that. Um, a good way to get the schedule that you want is to be overqualified and take a pay cut. (laughs) (laughs) And then, then you can arrange your schedule, uh, how you like it. It's easier to get the universe to do what you want it to do. Right. (laughs) So somewhere along there, you managed to co-author a book, right? Yeah. So this was the first time I'd ever been engaged. Um, and Martin had been working with the Mountaineers press and, he and Scott and I um, signed up to author the um, Backcountry Skiing, Skills for Skiing and Ski Mountaineering book. Um, and we took that on with a little bit of an idea of what it takes. Um, and I, I love writing. I mean, that comes out a little bit of being a history major. You do a lot of writing uh, in that situation. And um, it was an amazing process. And then we gave, like, uh, we did all of the things. This was the opportunity to put it all in one place. Um, both Scott and I had been mentored by Martin. So we had a very similar culture, but it was, it was directly connected to what was happening on AMGA programs. Um, what was going on with standards there. And then we submitted the draft manuscript and then there was like two more years of work. I'm exaggerating. There was an insane amount of editing to happen afterwards. And that part was hard. That was a super grind. Anyone who's done that, um, process can, uh, can relate, but it was, um, it was, it, when I look back, writing that book was pretty early. You know, I had just learned a lot of the stuff that I was writing about. Um, and so that is a credit to Martin and to Scott. Um, and I could write about it and I knew it and I could teach it, right? You, you get a depth once you're teaching things. So I had begun doing that. Um, and, um, but I'm enormously grateful for that sort of team effort um, 
it's hard to capture that uh, with a list of names uh, on, on a cover of a book. Sure. I can imagine a lot goes into that with a lot of help. Yeah. Margaret, when did you get involved with Avalanche Education? I have very clear memories of the first time uh, that I participated in as a student in an area instructor course at Snoqualmie Pass um, in December, some year when it had not yet snowed very much. I believe that was 2005. And um, we had some folks come, Howie Schwartz, Alan Bernholtz were their names. They came and taught an ITC, the instructor training course. And that was the beginning of my direct connection to Avalanche Education. and. What happened in the years following that is that I demonstrated my ability to concisely summarize and teach the technical content, specifically in the area two. And I think that became uh, an avenue for me to become more connected. And I say that by no means for like patting myself on the back, but it, it's how I connected with Avalanche Education was I realized, gosh, folks, may or may not wrap their brains around these processes and why they care about it. Um, so it was initially like a science. And then once I became connected to it, it has since evolved into how science applies to behavior. <laughs> it's a whole other situation. Mm -hmm. um, so talk, let's get back a little bit on the roadmap. What happens, what happens next? Let's see, where are we on the road? We've finished, uh, all right, we've been fired from our engineering job. <laughs> and we're now um, relieved because I was working one and a half times. I was working all the time. So at that point, I also became involved uh, with the AMGA and the board of directors. Um, and I became involved, I think it was 2008, uh, as a member of the AMGA instructor team. Um, both of those experiences were a source of um, enormous professional and personal development um, and, and in completely different arenas. You know, being a member of the board of directors, you learn about nonprofit administration. Um, you learn about how you affect change in a community. Um, it's sort of a shortcut hint, if anyone's wondering. It's not to show up and pound your fist on the table three times a year. It takes a lot more work than that. Um, uh, so, being a member of the AMGA Board of Directors, I learned not only how nonprofits work, I learned a ton about how guiding works in our community um, and how access relates to that. One of the main things that bubbled out of that is that mountain guides are, um, we call it stewards of the land, but that was a light bulb that was happening then. Now it is sort of core to our principles, but at the time, as we were trying to demonstrate why mountain guides were different than people who sold hot dogs in a concession in a national park, that was a key thing that bubbled to the surface. Um, as a member of the AMG instructor team, that was uh, and continues to be a source of lifelong learning. Um, and that has to do with like personal learning about interpersonal group dynamics and communication, but it also has to do with uh, refining and improving technical abilities, application of those technical abilities, and uh, the guiding profession, like connecting with a lot of different professionals from all over the country who are working guides and understanding and learning from them. Uh, that's been a huge resource. Somewhere in there, I also joined the AMGA Technical Committee. So there was a lot of hats for a while. <laughs> 
Um, I was on the AMGA board of directors for 13 years. Uh, one of those years I was, I was president of the board for five of those 13. Um, I'm still a member of the AMGA instructor team and I'm still on the AMGA technical committee. So I've got one less hat. Um, but it was a really, those 13 years on the board of directors are enormously valuable, um, personally, as well as professionally. Um, I was shaped in a lot of ways by those interactions. Yeah, I'm sure that's, uh, you know, it's, I think that's something that a lot of, um, people don't think about what goes on behind the scenes, even, even avidly working guides. Right. And, um, it seems like that advocacy and, um, the folks that are steering that ship are vital to the future of guiding. It was enormously powerful to watch, uh, the organization and the community go from a divisive situation about access and advocacy uh, to thrash around for decades. And then actually to reach a point where the leadership uh, was confident to move forward with that. Um, And that was a big deal. It was powerful to see that, you know, I went to DC on my own (laughs) to go talk to the federal government um, early on when I was on the board. And that's great and all like rah-rah for me, but uh, it turns out that that's not how you affect change. Showing up is, of course, important, but showing up in a unified, collaborative way with the Coalition for Outdoor Access, with a dedicated professional who has experience in policy, that's how you affect change um, versus a real fired-up mountain guide who can talk her way into things. Um, So it was wonderful to see that arc um, because Otherwise, it's a matter of you pour your heart and soul into something and then it fizzles and you go away and nothing happens. And that is not a positive experience. And with AMGA, that did not happen. Uh, And it's inspirational and it's a demonstrated process that worked and continues to affect change. Well, I have to think a bit about some divisive situations that we find facing ourselves these days. And um, I'm sure there's lessons to be learned from your experience in that what 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 do you see as the most dis- divisive situation facing the mountain guiding community as of lately that is an excellent question i if you'd asked me 10 years ago i would have had a completely different answer i think um especially this year with the covids uh the divisive interactions between user groups. Um, They've always been there. And when you add sustained cortisol levels and a high level of sort of environmental stress for months, um, I think that user groups fighting against each other is um, toxic and it's destructive. Um, Before COVID-19, we all were beginning to wrap our brains around what it means to have an in crowd and an out crowd, you know, outside of our industry, um, this was already happening and it's recently come in, whether you call it white privilege, whether you call it, uh, entitlement, those like powerful social currents outside of our mountain communities made their way into it. Awareness of that has been making its way into our communities and, then COVID hit, (laughs) right? So now everything is harder. Like everything is harder. Like day-to-day life is not the same as it was just to even get to some level of function. So everybody's 
stress levels are up. So if I had to pick a thing or a few things that are the most divisive, um, that bubbles to the top, whereby you have the potential, and it's linked to access, <clears throat> you have the potential for user groups fighting amongst each other for access to the mountains. And now take the COVID situation where there's a big uptick in that access. Scarcity is getting created, whether it's because um, scarias are limiting ticket sales, whether it's because trailheads are closed in some states and not in other states. Plus there was already the growth of the, of the industry that was happening. Um, so I think that in our small world, that is, uh, that is a theme that is specific to this year because the volume has just been turned up on it. Um, before the COVIDs, that divisiveness was more about the in crowd and the out crowd. And um, I have had experience with gender being the out crowd, um, certainly not with race, right? Um, and so the me of 10 years ago would have looked around and said, you know, this is an amazing experience. My peers are engaged, they're supportive. Um, I'm the only girl, but it doesn't matter. Everyone is like so psyched that I'm here. People treat me with a very positive attitude. They're like, this is amazing. You're so great. You're here. This is wonderful to have you. It's all this positive experience. Um, going through my MGA training, I felt supported. Uh, I thrived in that environment. Um, and I was, I viewed our community as being sort of kind and welcoming and supportive. And it was, um, for me. <laughs> And the me of now understands that what I did was adapt into the dominant culture, which was the friendly white male space of the outdoor industry. And by adapting into that, I, you know, if you've ever learned a bit about affinity biases and how we connect with people with whom we have affinity, and that creates barriers for folks who don't have the same affinities, um, I just fit right into that. And I had a great experience. And then since then, out as a guide with my guests, I have had a long series of microaggression isn't the right word, but like micro negative, micro not awesome. Um, and then a couple of big ones. Um, and those sort of totaled up to the understanding of what it's like to be deemed less competent or less valued or less belonging based on something like gender. Um, so the only reason I'm mentioning that and my experience there is it's a tiny window into what it's like to be on the outside. Um, and I learned a ton from other women in the industry who did not have the same experience that I did, who were not willing to chameleon, to just blend in, adapt. You know, code switch is the is the phrase. And as mountain guides, we need to be able to code switch to our guests, right? To connect with them, we do that a lot. So in our community, um, I had a great experience. I began to understand that that was not broadly applicable and that those things actually live together. In other words, you can be... Um, you can fail to be inclusive even when you are acting kindly, even when you are connecting, even when you are behaving in a way that respects and is ethical um, and is professional. And uh, 
Yeah, I'm on the tip of the iceberg of that one. Like I'm, if I say any more, I'm officially outside my scope of practice with regards to that. <laughs> um, but my experience as a female in the industry has, has actually not been super positive out in the industry. And it took a while to admit that. And then once I did admit it, like there's this welling up of rage is maybe not the, quite the right word, but there is anger there. And there is, um, there is a very intense response um, to those microtransgressions that can occur. If I'm hearing you correctly, Margaret, it sounds like you you were successful at at as you would say maybe like coming into the in crowd, right? Because you had that code switch ability, and I think a lot of that just knowing you as I do, I think that's partly your personality, right? Um, and, and maybe has, I think, regardless of gender, I think other people probably struggle with that regardless of race. And so what can we do as a community to get better? I spend a lot of time thinking about this, uh, and I, I don't have training in regards to social justice, right? I don't have that skill set. I am a learner. What I do have is training and application of how groups of people work well together or don't work well together. So that is specific to backcountry travelers. So that can include backcountry users uh, across all user groups who are recreational travelers. That also includes professionals. So in the avalanche education world, we teach a strategy right? That strategy is based on an international standard for risk management. Push the nerd glasses up the nose, ISO 31000. That is translated into different contexts. One of those contexts is recreational. So the ARI risk management framework is that. It's a system-wide approach to managing your risk. It's also a framework to learn how to make decisions in a risky environment over your whole life. In other words, it's a lifelong learning process. And it's a framework built to support that process. On the professional side, we apply ISO 31000 on an operational basis. And that means that there are risk management structures, morning meetings, hazard forecasting, gathering information, assessing the strength and the weight of that information, mitigating according to that forecast, gathering more information, assessing again that iterative process. So, Here's the thing that somebody said to me in another context, and I don't know who gets credit for this original phrase, but it is culture eats strategy for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) And we are teaching a strategy in the avalanche education world, professional and recreational. And what I have observed is that culture eats that strategy for breakfast. Full stop. And The reason that this is connected to my experience as a a female in a mostly white male space, i.e. our industry, is that one of the foundational pieces of managing risk is the way that humans interact with each other and how they treat each other and how they communicate with each other. So there's an idea that small groups can make better decisions. And that's my New Hampshire accent right there. A friend of mine in college was always like, hey, who's this Ken guy? You keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> so small groups can make better decisions than individuals. You have more brains 
you have um, more situational awareness. In order for that to work, there need to be rules of engagement so that that group is functional and not dysfunctional. And those rules of engagement are related to how you seek consensus. Um, and the fact that there's a fail-safe if somebody is not comfortable, it's called the veto power, that the group defaults to that. In other words, it defaults to a conservative fail-safe. There's a requirement that everyone engages. Uh, you don't want the group think. There's a requirement that everyone maintains situational awareness. And for that group to function well, you also need someone who's a devil's advocate, someone who disagrees, and the group needs to be okay with that. So it's a tall order. And in order for that to work, for it to be functional instead of dysfunctional, it has to be a safe space for people to say what they think. That's where our culture, I think, eats our strategy. And whether it is because you are not saying something in a group discussion, whether professional or recreational, because you stand to lose something personally, so it's taking a personal risk if it's at work, if you disagree, uh, or if you don't want to do something that the guests do want to do and have paid significant amount of money to do, whether it is because you are not being heard when you do express your opinion. So this is one that um, relates, this is one that I relate to a lot, which is watching how information that is conveyed by women is uh heard and applied in a group discussion and how information that's conveyed by men in that same environment, how different that is. <laughs> it's not that sweet. Again, spoiler alert. So watching that, and, and this is in spaces where folks understand bias. This is in professional spaces where we study how bias can screw up our decision-making and put us and our guests at risk. Um, but implicit bias is implicit. And so it happens when you're not paying attention to it. So if you have a risk management strategy. And the key foundation to that is that a group functions well together to make good decisions. You can see how those dots can connect. If that group is not functioning well, then your risk exposure goes up. And that's the culture that I see eating our strategy for breakfast because it happens in a heartbeat. You have training, whether recreational or professional, and how to assess the risk how to assess your uncertainty, what you need to do to ad adequately prepare, how to plan, what you do once you're in the field. And if you're a group dynamic, when your group dynamic kicks into gear, if that group dynamic does not link directly to that system, then it all goes out the window. The best assembled groups and the best assembled plans get rolled up into a tiny ball and chucked in a heartbeat. Um, I, I'm not saying that's a result of group dynamics. It's a result of people. Like you can't, you can't leave the people home. So um, as humans, we'll do just about anything to get what we want. And depending on sort of which cognitive or psychological theory you attach to the why of that, but there seems to be some consensus that desire is a powerful force and Social pressures are an enormously powerful force in terms of our actual behaviors. So when I look at, if I had to actually say it in one sentence, which I'm terrible at, what I see, my main lesson from the last 10 years is that what we're teaching is not what we're doing. So we have 
we have amazing resources and individuals involved in education and we have amazing curricula um, and we have good connections to research. There's a lot, a lot, a lot that can be done. We need some more funding there. But what I see out there is not the same as what is being taught. And um, when I heard that phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast, uh, it was like, oh, yes, that's exactly what is happening. Avalanche education presents a strategy, but our culture does not yet connect to that strategy enough to support it. To pull from one of the bajillion things in Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he, he indicates that when we're faced, we being humans, our cognitive powers, when we're faced with a difficult question that we can't necessarily answer, very often what we do is find an easier question that looks similar and answer that instead. Mm-hmm. Like over and over again. <laughs> and whether it's because our brains are sort of naturally efficient with our cognitive efforts. In other words, it's easier. If you need an answer, just answer an easier question. If you're not comfortable with not having an answer or whether it's that they're lazy or whether that the complexity is such that we actually will never get an answer and we're not okay with that. What we see is that if you can't answer the question, should I ride here? If you can't answer the question, is that slope going to avalanche? You can't answer the question, do I want to ride here? You can always answer that question. Sometimes it's no, sometimes it's yes. And that culture, our ability to manage our desires, there's still some kind of a disconnect uh, between that and the strategy that we build. And there are folks way better trained than me studying this. So I'm speaking from an anecdotal side, which is I teach the things I jump up and down, I wave my arms around, I get all excited about it. And then years go by and I see how people are behaving. I see the behaviors in the field and they are not the same thing. I really like how we kind of started talking about a, a, a culture that can be divisive and it has the ability to be divisive, but also has the ability to come together um, to make good cultural change. And halfway through your explanation there, I was thinking to myself, wait, are we talking about backcountry riding or are we talking about changing the culture of our community, right? And there's certainly parallels there. Uh. Yeah, I think they're connected. And it's it's a bit, um, I don't know the right word. It's I'm a little uncomfortable connecting those dots. Mm. Oppression, social justice, those are entirely different and the consequences of those are so much broader and far-reaching. You know, within our bubble, the consequences that we face are a severe injury or death from avalanches, right? That's our main thing. And that is, that's a big deal. That is life and limb. Um, but it doesn't have to do with entire um, races of people. It doesn't have to do with hundreds of years of suffering. Like it doesn't have to do directly with oppression at all, to be perfectly clear. But it is a community and it is a community where we can affect change. So the upside of having a smaller community that has access to education is that we can make things better in our subset of the universe, our subset of the wider world in a way more easily than we can in the big, big, big picture. Mm-hmm. 
Margaret, what steps do you think that we need to take within the snow and avalanche community to make it more inclusive? You know, what, what, what do we do? I know. Help. <laughs> I think it is super hard. And I, the best answer that I can come up with is to reach outside of our community to answer that question. So rather than answering the easy question of what can we do within our community, there are some things that could be qualified as like lower hanging fruit, things that are easier to do. But even as I say that, I'm like, yeah, no, that's not true. A cultural change is never easy. It's never the easy thing to do. So to answer your initial question, I think reaching outside of our industry to understand those wider issues related to oppression, related to social justice, race, gender, ethnicity, and how that has played out in our structures, that reflects back into our own community. In other words, we don't necessarily have the resources to understand how we can make it better. What we can do is understand how we can make it better in the whole wide world. And that, for me, has allowed some learning to occur that applies to our community, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So whether it is being open and curious, that's like the catchphrase, right? But open and curious to a training. There's air quotes right now. Um, to doing like buck up and read or listen to white privilege if you haven't yet. I'm like 45 minutes into it and it's going to take me another two months to get another 45 minutes through it. So that thing about doing the work to learn from folks that are dealing with way more intense and way more entrenched situations, when we come back into our community, those things can help us figure it out. And um, that means that when you're looking at the structural changes, so like one of the main ones that happens is hiring processes, who you hire in an operation, who is in the in crowd, who is in the decision making, who is in the room. Changing that is a, is a key piece to be able to change the culture. And what you hear in our industry is like, well, you can't, there's no one out there. And it's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on the podcast, but bullshit. <laughs> right. And so understanding that that question and that answer are not at all unique to our environment. I learned that from outside our environment. Mm. You're like, oh yeah, that happens. And then what it means is that in your current networks, you don't know who those people are. Mm -hmm. So you have to tap into networks that are not your current networks. You have to expand who is in the room when you're asking that question. You have to have this idea that they might not be in the room either because of affinity bias, barriers to entry, or by choice. They might not want to be in the room because of the culture that you've built in that room. That, for me, has been one of the main takeaways and it's one of the things that I think we can work within our community to change. Um, to give the specific example, it is um, a hazard forecast meeting whereby we're taking information, we're evaluating it, we're using an intuitive as well as an analytical process to come up with an, an avalanche forecast for the day. So the professional context. And that group has um, one or two women out of six, usually one, not including, not counting me, if we're lucky. And the way that that dynamic happens, and it's not just across gender lines, but it's across dominant personality if it's well facilitated. When I gave my list of the rules of engagement, the thing I didn't say at the very beginning is that you need a very good facilitator. 
So you can get shut down in a group, not because of your gender or your race, but because of the group dynamic. What I see is that who gets listened to and whose opinion gets valued does track along gender lines, for sure. The implicit bias thing is super real. Like people who say they are not biased, tend, like go take an implicit bias, bias test and it's there. Um, and that's okay. Just figure out what you're going to do about it. So this idea of an inclusive culture um, is also across user groups. So the whole thing about like slandering any of the user groups, like that's provincialism. Knock that shit off. No one is better than anybody else because of the tool that they use in the backcountry. Like you can't choose your race. You can't choose your gender. You can choose your travel tool, right? Uh, that's actually not the point. <laughs> so there is no cultural superiority across user groups. In fact, if user groups are choosing to infight amongst each other, then we all get railroaded by extraction, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're the chair of the EDCOM for ARI. What does that mean and what are you all working on with that? What it means is a facilitator uh, of that committee. And that educational committee is built to bring together folks that have a diversity of backgrounds and skill sets, including context. So whether that is ski areas and ski patrol, whether that is um, travel tool, snowmobile or ski or whether that is profession, educator, um, or researcher, uh, or practitioner. So the idea with that group is that to build educational curricula, you need more than one brain. You need input from multiple sides and multiple skill sets. So as chair of that group, the job is to facilitate that towards a consensus about what gets taught, and how. The subset of that is that the folks on that committee do a significant amount of work from outside the committee body. So um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. And, you know, there's like words that are like, it turns into that, the teacher from Peanuts, which is like, right, you say curriculum, and it's like, you say guidelines, people's like, it's like the static goes across here. But at some point, you have to figure out what is taught and what is not taught on an avalanche education program. So those guidelines begin with the number of hours, and they were redefined by the A3, American Avalanche Association, in a set of skills and proficiencies. So by the end of this program, students will. And those skills and proficiencies were built out for the professional side. And then the recreational side has guidelines, which are, um, you're sort of back into the, the peanuts voice, blah, 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 blah. but at its very core, it is a, a scaffolding for what is taught on programs. Now, a curriculum <laughs> is exactly what is taught. The learning outcomes for each lesson, when you are teaching how to read an avalanche bulletin and what to do with an avalanche bulletin. What exactly are the learning outcomes for the student? And here's where the educators that are involved in our committee, um, they connect the dots between what we think we should teach and what we should actually teach. So as a mountain guide, when I first started teaching avalanche education, I thought I should teach my students to make decisions the way that I do. Except my students on an area one have been in the backcountry for six months. 
maybe maybe three years. But they are going to have a completely different set of information that I will. And their ability to take in a new piece of information, understand it, build it into their structure, that they're going to be in a different place. So the ARI EDCOM is connecting the dots between the skills and proficiencies and the guidelines set by the A3 and where the educational rubber meets the road. In other words, what do you and should you teach at each phase of the education? If you have somebody who comes to an awareness class and you're talking about <laughs> near-surface facets, that's actually not going to help them make decisions in the backcountry. When and how do you introduce information? When and how can people process that information to make a forecast? At what point does a backcountry traveler begin to understand this idea of uncertainty? There's another peanuts word, right? It's like, you don't know what you don't know, like blah, blah. No, this is a really complex environment. To quote Martin, it ain't baseball. <laughs> like, so how do people begin to understand that complexity? What educational learning process, what scaffolding, what structure? One of my favorites from Liz Riggs-Mater, who is our, um, our recreational programs director, is the zone of proximal development. There's a good one, right? We call it the zone of proximal development. But it, it makes sense. You have a certain knowledge base. Picture a circle. In order to build on that knowledge base and add another circle, there needs to be overlap. You need to take new information and integrate it with the information you already have. Now, go for another circle and another, and they're overlapping. That is proximal development. You take steps in a progression towards mastery, right? If you start with a circle on the left-hand side and you go straight to the one on the right-hand side, your information is out of context. You actually can't take that information and use it in a way that meets the goals. And in our case, those goals are lifelong learning to manage avalanche risk. So, Long answer to a short question, what the ARI EDCOM does is to move from guidelines into this idea of building a curriculum, which is focused on scaffolding, is focused on how you teach adults, it's focused on presenting a progression, and it is that process happens via the input of a lot of people. If you haven't seen it, Liz Riggs-Mater's ISSW talk um, gives a very clear, like a much better than I ever could um, explanation of the process of the how and the why of building that decision-making framework. And that rebuild was based on the previous 20 years of avalanche education, which was based on the previous 40. So the Area Edcom does that for recreational and for professional. And when you say curriculum, that means lesson plans, what the student will do, what the teachers will do, what the main learning outcomes are. You've maybe been in a situation where somebody who knows a lot of really important things rambles. Hopefully with your editing, this podcast will not qualify as that situation, <laughs> but you have somebody who is a sage. They're like a 50 year veteran and they have more in their brain, but if they can't present it in a way that somebody can learn it, what you say is not the same thing as what somebody learns. So when you have an educational progression, you need to be able to present information in a way that what you say is what they're going to learn. And if not, you have other ways to say it. You have checks for understanding. You have a progression in which they can successfully apply that knowledge. So on the recreational side, 
um, that is the curriculum. And it includes the resources, the student manual. So they actually have in written form what they're getting in verbal with question and answer form, what they're applying in the field. They have the field book, which is a, a version of what they have learned in class with regards to that framework taken with them out into the mountains. So all of those details, when you hear the word curriculum, <laughs> that's all under that bullet point. And then it's the same thing on the professional side for the Pro 1 and for the Pro 2. So the Ariadcom figures out uh, what is going to happen specifically with regards to that curriculum. And, you know, some of the easy examples are like, how do you teach interference with transceivers to professionals and recreationals? Like, what do you say when somebody's like, hey, what about my cell phone, heated gloves, radio? Is it on this side of my body or that side of my body? Like, can I key my mic? What am I? Those very specific details. Um, it can be as broad as how do you teach uh, the forecasting cycle and what can you expect a pro one to be able to do, a pro one student. So somebody who's now had a, a level one, maybe a level two if you're lucky, but not required. And now they're on a pro one and it's a deep dive into how to get good data. And then everybody's cannonballed into the data swimming pool and they've completely lost sight of how, like, who cares? What do they do with that data? So you have to have a progression of the prerequisites for that program, what people have to do before they arrive, what happens on the program, what happens after the program. It's a lot. And agreeing on that is enormously difficult. <laughs> Consensus is not always possible. Mm. Well, we all appreciate all the work that you all are doing, the, the hard lifting, I would call it, to, to help with that progression. Because I, I'm interested in your, per, your perspective on this, but um, I feel like a lot of times we try and rush these things, right? We, want, we just want the experience. We want the, um, the wisdom of the mountains. And why can't we just order it on Amazon, get it free two day shipping, and then like plug that chip into our brain and have it and just be good with it. You know, I think it's, a, there's a little bit of a lost art of the process these days. What are your thoughts on that? I agree a thousand percent. And I have been guilty of exactly that. Once I started my AMGA training, I wanted to be done with my AMGA training. Like I am doing this so I can get the pin. I am doing this. So I, and it's like, after my last exam, there was this moment of like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. Now, like, now, wait a second. <laughs> and, um, you know, the idea of mentorship and operational training, they can fill in those gaps. But one of my main pieces of unsolicited advice to students on AMGA programs and ARI Pro programs is not to rush it. And there are many powerful forces pushing in the other direction. Um, you know, that the very first level one that I took, everybody says that, you know, Mark Moore from the Northwest Weather and Avalanche Center said that. And you're like nodding your head, right? But you're like, whatever, I'm going to figure this out as soon as I can. <laughs> so, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a mistake or a learning process that every individual kind of has to go. Like, you, I don't know how you can shortcut understanding what is meant by experience. People who don't have it don't value it, even though they say they do. But they value it in like, this person has this level of experience. If I grab their leg and don't let go, I'll get that too. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, you actually have to 
gather your own experience and they can help you reflect on that experience. But they can't like, it's not the matrix, right? They can't do that thing into the back of your neck and you're good to go. You've had every experience they have had. I'm not sure how to accurately convey that um, aside from storytelling, you know, the, the story of having sort of grown up, my avalanche growing up happened in a maritime snow climate. And the first time I went to Silverton to teach a level three for Aerie, I was terrified, absolutely terrified because I'd shifted to, and it was, you know, deep persistent, been that way for weeks. Sun is shining, surfaces are crusting. And everyone is like getting bored of the idea of a deep persistent slab avalanche problem. And then one morning we're driving up and it's like giant size three natural 15 foot crown went just cause no significant weather event. Like a squirrel stepped on the wrong pine cone. I don't like, and that's what happens. Forecasters are pulling over. People are taking pictures. People are on the telephone that experience completely blew my mind. And to capture that for somebody else, because by this point, I'm now teaching a level three. So I'm a solid decade into like applied avalanche forecasting. And the experience from seeing like it's on the battle, I'll never forget it. The battleship is the name of the feature. You can see it from the road. That created an awareness of a bucket of information experience that I didn't even know was there. I didn't even know that you had to have a whole different set of experiences, a list of 10 other things to have done to actually understand deep persistence labs and not understand like why they happen, just understand how they behave and what you should do about it. So if you'd said that to me when I was teaching my Airy one, I would have been like, yeah, they're complex and difficult. (laughs) Um, But those impactful experiences, um, I think that if you don't have those impactful experiences, your, um, your subconscious brain, the way that you see the world, the way that you see risk and consequence um, is missing information. And that's what you can't shortcut. You know, people think about like, well, there's only behavioral change when something terrible happens or something impactful happens. Um, but I think it's when you have intense experiences that create learning and expand your depth of understanding, that's that thing that you can't shortcut. Yeah. And it, and whether it's going from maritime to deep persistent or whether it is professional overconfidence, you know, you've spent 20 years being in charge of being right. You're supposed to know. You are supposed to know. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that's, that's not actually related to your ability. That's not automatically related to your ability to know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So. Margaret, um, how has it been not being able to go guide in Europe? You know, it's a super high quality problem right? It's like in the grand scheme of the world. Um, but it has, it has been both awful and valuable. Um, the awful has been, um, 
missing that place, um, missing the community over there. Um, in a way, it's sort of missing the the experiences that you that you get to have, right? Whether it is like your plate of French fries and your vice beer over there in Sudji Roll, whether it is um, the cappuccino before like unbelievable powder skiing on a glacier to the tram until you do it again, like the actual experiences, you just miss those. Um, and the it's I've had a lot of conversations with um, members of my community who are used to traveling, who are used to going places. And I was in Boulder to teach an AMGA program and we walked into Sherpa's, the Nepali restaurant there. And like, I've, I haven't even been to Nepal. I've been to India and Erica Engel was with me. And we both just had this moment because it smelled and it felt like another place. And it was just like, oh my God, I miss that. Uh, so there is, grieving is a strong word, but there is, that is a loss in how we've built our lives. Um, the upside of it is that the COVIDs, as I like to call them, have forced my hand in looking around to the uh, environment and to the community where we've chosen to live and engaging in that. And that's huge. As a mountain guide, it's our job to go where the best whatever is, the best thing, the best riding, the best weather, the best climbing, the best route, the best new cool place. And that optimization can be um, fairly destructive for a rooted, engaged community life. You know, our community is spread across the globe. And my non-guide friends just get used to not knowing where I am. And my guide friends don't need to know where I am unless we're in the same place and figure it out on social media. But there is a level of disconnectedness there. Um, so the upside of not being able to go to Europe is finding out what's amazing about where we live. Um, and we are, you know, there's six mountain ranges here. And even with the COVID crowds, you can get away from them. You have to work harder, but it's not like it's not an option. You can still do it. And then we've been more engaged with the school that our girls go to in helping, volunteering, assisting that school to function. And that strengthens our connection to this community. You know, I read the local paper every day. I never did that before. Mm. Understanding what's happening in the place that I live and engaging in a useful way. Like it sounds kind of buzzwordy, like blah, 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 community engagement, blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't quite realize the extent to which we didn't do that. We didn't have time. It was too busy mm -hmm. packing mm -hmm. and unpacking. <laughs> uh, and so being here and being happy to be here, I won't say slow down because that's like a, that's sort of like a lie. <laughs> you guys don't slow down at all. No, there's no way. Tell. Like my personality doesn't do that. <laughs> Anyways, we have two little kids. Like there's no slowing down. Um, so that would be disingenuous. Um, but just redirecting to where we live has right. been incredible. Yeah. And I guess I should add, I don't know if we covered this. I can't remember, but um, you and your partner, Matt Farmer, also an IFMGA guide, and your two daughters would do the move over to Europe to go guide, right? And, and so the, kind of the constant back and forth and guiding both in Europe and North America, right? Yeah, that's right. And it, when we had one, you could do it. <clears throat> Somebody said that to me once. When you have one kid, you can just kind of go where you go. You can live your life as prior. I think it was... 
guy named Stian, Stian Hagen, who's um, over there in Chamonix. And they were about to have their second. And so were we. Um, mm. When you have the second, then you have to reevaluate just because of the, the setup takedown, the sheer volume of logistics. Um, but what we figured out as a family was rather than one parent be gone for long periods of time, thereby the other, the other one is single parenting and the one who's gone is disconnected from the family for three or four weeks, is that if you travel together, you don't have to disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, pros and cons to both because when the second was done traveling together meant that all spare time and energy goes to those logistics and so personal climbing personal skiing like poof and you get to be together as a family in amazing places and that was that is amazing Um, but you're not going skiing for yourself you're going skiing with your kiddos you're maybe going skiing for yourself with yourself for yourself a little bit, but there's only so many hours in the day and your bandwidth is only so large. So moving back and forth was wonderful and not moving back and forth is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but we were on the same flight to Geneva one time, I think, or maybe from Geneva back back to the states and i and i i saw this firsthand of of you guys balancing all this and and i have to say seemed like you're doing it with incredible grace do you have any advice for for other guides and educators who are are looking to start a family regardless of their gender you know it is um i'm cautious to give advice because it's so context specific Mm -hmm. um when you're a pregnant lady, uh, people try and give you advice all the time. I, and I'm, I was like, duh, 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 I don't want to hear it because it's such a different experience for everyone. So that's my like advice disclaimer. Um, but I think, you know, to put it in like the avalanche terms, <laughs> um, the idea of margins um, and of uh, connection to a community um, are, are things that I didn't realize how important they were. So margins, you know, you you don't know what you're going to be like as a parent. I didn't know what I was going to be like as a pregnant lady. And everyone's going to be different. Like, let's be clear. <laughs> and so to assume that your experience should reflect somebody else's is going to generally make you sort of miserable. I mean, I guess that's true in all things. So giving yourself margins. In other words, when you are going to have a kid, give yourself a margin where every second is not accounted for where maybe between trips you have more time than you used to as a single human or non-parents, you can do a turnaround to 24 hours between continents. It sucks, but you can do it. And bad things don't usually happen. Sometimes they do, but generally not. You get away with it a lot. You can't do that with little kiddos. You pay the price. Like you have small people awake in the middle of the night and you don't, there's no off switch. (laughs) So the idea of margins in your planning. And that also goes with financial planning. Um, we live in a place where we don't have grandparents. Um, we come from a situation where our grandparents do help us. And I, I'm super honest about that because there is no way that we could do what we do without that. So to pretend that how we navigate having two little kids is based on only us, our 24 hours of two grown-ups 
and our professional lives and our income, like no way, no how. And you can navigate that situation um, in a number of ways. You know, I'm sort of like, if you're going to have a baby, like money is what you need for childcare (laughs) is what you need. You don't need any stuff. It's all used and free and available with very little effort. You tap into those networks. If anyone wants to give you something, have a bank account that you save for childcare. Um, Because at some point you have to decide who's working and who's not working. And the second person working is working to keep their shit together, not working to add income because you have to pay for childcare. So some of those nuts and bolts things. um, And I think if you have the guiding mindset of planning ahead for that, that's where I see folks thrive. Um, If you have grandparents and you live in the same place as them, I am so envious. It's amazing. Um, (laughs) Even if you think your grandparents' parenting style might be a little crazy, like that's a whole other situation, but having those community resources, you know, we miss our village when we travel. Even when we go to Chamonix, other people have their village already. We're only in that village for a summer, mm-hmm. but we don't fully have it set up and we can get it there, but it takes a lot of work. So if I had to give advice, it's this idea of like plan for margins because your income earning potential is going to go down and your expenses are going to go up. But you can mitigate that based on where you live and who is near you. Um, and you can you can fit that into your world based on those things as well. I don't know if it's that useful advice. Um, but it's like uh, to pretend that it's, that it is, it sounds dumb. To pretend that it's easy is like, again, disingenuous and not helpful. And to pretend that you can do it alone is straight out not true. Um, there are people who are like, single parents and raise multiple kids. And that is unbelievable. And the personal and professional costs of those seem like they're pretty well documented. So if you want to be a mountain guide and have small humans, um, it takes some planning. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we're fairly good at planning. But having that idea of margins, because it may be that once you have small humans, you do want to spend more time with them. It may be that once you have small humans, you don't want to spend more time with them. You want to be at work more and you won't really know that until you have them. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. Speaking of margins, care to share a story of, of a time when your margins weren't quite big enough in the mountain environment, whether it's a climbing or a, a snowy ski descent context? Mm-hmm. I have uh, multiple of those. <laughs> um, one was like 2005 and was, I think, formative to my experience. And then one was last year on our ski guides course in Soul Mountain Lodge. Um, and they're connected. So that's why I'm giving two, even though you asked me for one. Um, so the 2005 example was at Snoqualmie Pass, and I was um, a year off finishing getting my pin. So I was well into, I'd finished my ski cert, and I was working on finishing my alpine. I'd finished my rock. And I was working for Martin at Pro Guiding Service. And the Mountaineers in Seattle um, contracted us to train their leaders. And the folks that came for that were their like 30-year veteran volunteer leaders. Um, so they're, you know, solid 20 years older than I am. And we're at Snoqualmie Pass and there's three of us as guides and it's nuking, completely raging. And we have, um, we being the overconfident, newly trained 
mountain guides have decided that we can demonstrate how you can use terrain to manage hazard. Sound familiar? <laughs> so we head up the Alpental Valley, which is, you know, very, very steep terrain. And there's generally, um, it's second growth trees, if you've never been there. And there's only a few spots where there is um, exposure to some very narrow avalanche paths. Well, we arrive to the first of those and like just the, the three inches of surface snow, and this is probably at like 9 a.m., um, just zippers out a little size one. And the most experienced guide among us just decides to spin and go up through the steep trees. And the other two of us decide to keep going and we're breaking trail. It's like hip deep. And we get across that slope and underneath the one, let's call the mushroom slide path. There's a little start zone and then there's a nasty terrain trap. And the thing is like 30 feet, you cross underneath it. So we get up there and it's that thing where all of a sudden nobody likes it and there's some yelling. <laughs> and then we like power through the person in the lead breaks trail, gushing sweat. We get everybody out of there. And then we proceed to go up through the second growth forest. And like, it is so steep breaking trail. We can't get anywhere. It's snowing like two to three inches an hour. It's raging. And we can hear avalanches like zipping all around us. And we are like, see, this is awesome. This is how you navigate this hazard. It's high hazard and we're out in the terrain. And then we ski down and we go back through that spot. And there is a line of 25 Alpental patrollers. Problem. And there was a woman on snowshoes and her friend, and they followed our tracks, and she got avalanched into the train trap. And they found her three days later. What do you remember thinking then? Uh, at the time, I remember like curled up in a ball. <laughs> we, the Mountaineers leaders, were furious, rightfully so. We were getting like screamed at in Arby's. Um, I remember the awful feeling of having made a mistake, like a big mistake, and that somebody else got killed. And I tell that story, like I had the chance to go back to the Mountaineers like 10 years later and offer that as a case study, but I didn't say what event it was. In other words, we were doing an advanced, it was called, it was a going deeper night. And I presented all the information and asked everybody what they would do. So it's small groups, they have the weather data, they have the forecast, they have terrain options, they're looking at maps, they're figuring it all out. Um, and everyone in that room made better decisions than we did. Nobody chose to go up that valley. And so I tell that story because our margins were too thin. Like we threaded the needle. It was a four hour period that we were, you know, between when we walked up and when we skied past that probe line. And our terrain margins were too thin. Our time margins with the avalanche hazard and the precip, um, our ability to travel fast. We had no way to speed up to get out of there. Um, so that when we say margins, it's like the peanuts teacher, like margins, like what do you mean by that? And that experience made it very clear to me what it feels like when you don't have a margin. I'm just going to interject here for a moment. Um, I did some editing through this point in the conversation, and but Margaret and I were talking about a shared experience when she was instructing an AMGA course that I was taking, a ski guide course, where I decided to 
um, bring the group underneath an avalanche path. And I've identified that as a time when my margins weren't quite big enough. So we reflected on that a bit, and you'll hear some reference to that in this next segment. You don't always know that they're as skinny as they are until after, and you don't always get feedback if they are, right? It's like you don't know if you're right about your forecast if it's yeah. in your slides. It's the same thing. So your understanding of how skinny your margins have become, there might be a time lag or you might never have it. And so they need to be wider when people are in that learning environment. They have to be. So when somebody, when you, when you have a valuable learning experience, the consequences are decreased. Um, and even since, because I also remember that, even since that program, I have increased my margins. I've intervened sooner as an instructor because I also learned. Absolutely. And the, the incident that I was talking about was actually this year, which is when I let those margins go back down again. And it all worked out great. It was like the run of the year. But we were in assessment mode in new, steep, complex terrain. And it was like overhead powder in the Monashies as they do. And we said we were going to step in lightly and we center punched it because uh, it was amazing. And we debriefed it as like, it wasn't a near miss, but it was a decision-making near miss. Mm. You know, that question, did we do what we said we we're going to do was like, hell no. We took our like careful plan, took that piece of paper, rolled it into a tiny ball and like chucked it over our shoulders and dropped in full stop. And the, the margin was skinny. If anything had gone wrong in that terrain, it would have gone terribly, terribly wrong. Was it worth it? It might have been worth it as a learning experience for folks. Because we had two pretty seasoned folks that have been guiding in Alaska a ton. And it, that was part of that halo is I was like, I have confidence that they can get us through this terrain. They have dealt with this terrain. They're not going into here without the skill set needed. Um, but it was pushing it and I was uncomfortable that we had done that. And so I think it was worth it. We have to ask the students if I think, I hope that it was worth it as a way to demonstrate how culture can eat strategy mm. for breakfast at the cost of our margins. Because I am like the culture of conservatism is the thing that is developing for me year after year of instructing these programs is like we need to teach a culture of conservative because people are going to go right up to whatever boundaries we set mm. and what we teach them. So, but it was a really good run. <laughs> but I had a little bit of that same feeling of like, I kind of screwed up. Mm. Like as an instructor, I messed up and it didn't, nothing bad happened. So that was good. And that's how it's supposed to work, right? When when we reflect on experiences where nothing bad happens, we can still learn from those experiences if we keep that perspective of what could have happened. Yeah. I could have I could have I could have said nothing. In the PM meeting, everybody was like so stoked. It's poking into a new zone. Unbelievable riding. And everybody was super stoked and I could have just not brought it up. Mm -hmm. Nobody else did. Cause mm. why would you? Right. And the, you know, the person in, I shouldn't say no one else did. Uh, 
the person who was in the lead was kind of started to bring it up and looked for me to the cue of like, should I keep going or not? And I was like, yes, we should keep going and talk about this. So I shouldn't say nobody brought it up. But if I had been like, ah, whatever, it's fine. Then he would have been like, all right, it's fine. It's totally not fine. <laughs> the value of debriefing, right? And reflecting upon our experiences is, is huge within our world. It's, it's a, a, a fraction of the way to develop our ability to make decisions. Like we don't get feedback most of the time. That's the thing, right? Intuition is built on experience. But if your experience is missing the fact that you were like your margins were basically 0.1, then your intuition is skewed in that professional overconfidence thing. Yeah. So the debrief, the honest debrief of like, did anybody else have that? I don't really like this feeling. And if you don't have a safe space for people to like, I did, I didn't really like it then you blink in that chain, you cut that cycle. Which brings us back to, to shifting some culture within our community. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's such a, I mean, it's taken us an, it takes so long to connect that to systematic racism, right? It takes so long to connect that to those powerful forces outside our industry. Um, but those lessons from those powerful forces I think could make a significant difference in cultural change that needs to happen. Mm. And it happens. I, I talk as if the sky is on fire. Like I get shit for this where it's like, come on, chicken little, the sky's not falling, but I'm like, yeah, we're training generations of overconfident mountain guides <laughs> <laughs> and not just mountain guides, overconfident forecasters, avalanche professionals. Um, because what I see is that people are going to go right up to that limit. Whatever we say is possible. That's what folks are going to go right up to that. And the margin thing, only happens with experience and not just in the professional realm i think it's very much happening in the recreational realm as well with you know newer lighter gear access you know easier mapping technology i mean you just follow the line mm -hmm. you get the goods right <laughs> get yourself into a world of hurt yeah so easily margaret uh favorite snack for the skin track Ooh, hmm, hmm. There are a few. It's a combination: protein and sugar. And I have some long-time. Any of my long-time clients will crack up because the protein one. It's called Landjäger. It's like the little mini dried sausages. Um, reason being ease of access, so you can like shove them in your face and still have your skins off before your guests do. Um, and then of course the, um, sour gummies. Mm. So, and that's not just for like ski guiding in the cold weather. Yes. But like you top out on a long climb or a long Alpine climb and it's like, everyone gets gummies because that's going to make your brain function for a little while. You got to follow it up with protein so you don't crash, but that's going to lead to better decision-making on the descent. Kahneman proved, well, actually Kahneman mentions it. I forget who proved it. Mm. So Landjäger, sour gummies. Like, do you have a specific brand of sour gummies? Are you into the SPKs, the Sour Patch Kids, or the? You know, they're a little, they're a little sharp. Oh. <sighs> the like, you know, Haribo. Oh yeah, yeah. Makes the best gummies, and the ones the U.S. Haribo are not quite the same, but they're close. Mm -hmm. Funny you say that. I just went to Trader Joe's, which is a three-hour drive from here, 
and I had an hour and I went and what you stockpile when you go to Trader Joe's is like a view into your, so I mostly was getting mountain snacks. There, There's like 15 packs of Trader Joe's gummies in my grocery bag. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, Margaret, thanks so much for taking the time today to sit down and chat. It's great to see your face and, um, and, and talk to you about your career and some of your thoughts on where our community is heading and can be heading, um, some strategies to, to maybe get there in the future. Well, thanks so much for having me and also for uh, humoring the sort of long arc to connect the dots back into where we exist. Even though sometimes we try and block out the outside world, it does affect who we are, how we behave. Right. Well, I, th- I think you did a great job of bringing it all back together. And I've always had a hard time keeping up with you on the skin track and sometimes <laughs> in conversations. So uh, I ho- I think I kept up though today. Um, totally. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Um, so I can't wait to get out skiing or, or maybe brapping around with you at some point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look forward to it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Margaret. We'll see you soon. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk about some audio mentorship. Holy cow. The podcast is growing, and we have you to thank for that. Tell a friend, tell your friend to tell a friend, and post a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. We are at The Avalanche Hour. We certainly cannot make this happen without the support of our sponsors, MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. While we grow more, we are asking for your help. I've always tried to get to the meat and potatoes of sharing these great conversations with some of the best people in our industry. However, there is some cost associated with growth at this point. To help offset this, we're looking at some additional marketing platforms. My hope is that this doesn't distract from the main goal of the podcast, but instead, over time, it'll enhance things. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to do your part to make sure that this podcast continues to grow and remain a valuable resource within our community, there are a few companies the podcast has relationships with where we benefit from your purchases. Now, I'm not trying to sell you on anything here, but if you're going to purchase this stuff anyways, why not do it through the links in the show notes and that'll help us out too. If you go to the show notes, you'll find a 10% off code on Wonder Alpine Skis. I ski them, I love them, I know you will too. If you're looking for the real light and fast setup, check out Hagen Ski Mountaineering for the latest and greatest lightweight skis, skins, bindings, and boots. Lastly, if you use CBD products, grab the link from the show notes to receive a discount on social CBD products and help us out while you're at it. They've got everything from great topicals that will relieve aches and pains from big days in the mountains to oils and even products for your four-legged friends. 
Help support the show by purchasing these products through the links in the show notes. Music on today's episode was brought to you by Ketza at the opening with Parallel Worlds and Sholin Dub with Ascend Dub in the background as we speak. Use of these tracks are made possible through the permission of the artist. Our artwork is created by Mike T. Check out more of Mike's work at MikeT.com. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Tune in Monday, December 7th for a bonus episode featuring my good friend Chip Aaronchild. We chat about risk management in a different context, and Chip brings some valuable perspective to the conversation. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.